Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Renee Mill. Renee is an expert in evidence-based treatment for stress and anxiety, parenting without anger, and the importance of emotional intelligence in the workplace. Today, we're really going to dive into emotional intelligence in the workplace and also dealing with anxiety and stress without the medication. Welcome to the podcast, Renee Mill. Hi, Leah. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to have you on, Renee, because emotional intelligence in the workplace, this is something I, I'd really love to start to, to dig into because I was, I, was at a, I was at the border trying to get this global entry card and the lady at the border expressed to me that within a month, two uh, employees had entered their life at work. And when I look at the stats on workplace stress and suicide rates, uh, it's alarmingly high compared to uh, suicides in other areas and people managing stress um, and anxiety. And so for people out there who are stressed at their job and they don't know how to deal with that, that stress, that anxiety and, and how to communicate that. Um, I'm excited to have you on so that we can unpack that. So when we talk about emotional intelligence in the workplace, what does that mean for you, uh, uh, Renee? So emotional intelligence very simply is the ability to know what your emotions are. That's the first level, is awareness of what you're going through. And many of us don't. We, we become numb. So you talk about the workplace, we get up, we have to make a living. Someone, one of my clients yesterday said to me, another day, another dollar. That was his expression. And that's how people live, another day, another dollar. And so they numb themselves by just getting through or just focusing on pleasing the manager or making a living or numbing themselves with addictions or other things. So the first level of emotional intelligence is knowing and checking in what you're actually feeling. And actually what I'm doing a lot of work now is on burnout, which is when people haven't checked in and then they reach a phase where they actually just can't carry on. So that's the first step. Actually be aware from the very beginning what am I feeling today? And it's basic questions long before stress and anxiety. How tired am I? How engaged am I in my job? Um, how do I feel when my manager talks to me like that? How do I feel when I leave my kids at home and I'm not happy with their care? So that's the first level is always to check in every day and be aware, no matter your job, no matter what you do, we're all human beings and we have an internal barometer that if we just check in, we'll let us know what's going on for us. And sometimes our body tells us, you know, now there's a famous book, The Body Keeps the Score. And it's that idea of maybe I don't know how to identify my feelings, but am I getting a lot of headaches? Do I get knots in my stomach? Once you have a level of awareness, then the next level of emotional intelligence is managing whatever it is you're going through. And this is actually what I've spent the last 40 years of my life doing is teaching people to emotionally regulate, to know what's going on, and then to have tools to manage what's going on. 
And it's the same as with physical. You know, if you hurt your leg, the sooner you treat it, the better it's going to be. So the sooner you manage what's going on, and again, it doesn't have to be on the level of pathology or anything serious. It's knowing I'm feeling a little bit stressed or I feel uncomfortable when someone talks to me like that. Then you can say, well, what do I need to do? Is it just that I have to learn to relax more or I have to learn to manage my expectations or do I need to learn a behavioral thing like asserting myself more so that some change needs to take place rather than this chronic same day every day feeling put down or feeling upset or feeling not energized or being overtired whatever it is that we're going through to self-regulate the third level of of emotional intelligence is then being able to stay motivated How do you keep going when times are tough? How do you keep going when times are boring? Um, How do you learn to emotionally keep yourself going and not rely on external rewards and other people? Then the fourth level is being able to be empathic. And when emotional intelligence first came out in 95, and a lot of the research since then has shown empathy as one of the key things about being emotionally intelligent. So once you're managing your own emotions, then you need to tune into other people because the ability to care about other people or to know, again, what they're wanting from you is a very big part of the emotional intelligence. And then the final level is what some people just call social intelligence, is, is having social skills and improving those. And in the workplace, we call it being politically savvy. So that's the whole long of the five levels. And each along the way, one needs to check in where one needs to regulate, learn, change, adapt, grow. It's lovely to grow and thrive, see it in a positive light. I appreciate you breaking down all five for me, as I definitely want to go back to number one in terms of knowing what your emotions are, because I think for most people, that's where the challenge is, is you know, we spend so much time uh, numbing our emotions or escaping them or, you know, trying to busy ourselves so we're not dealing with how we're feeling that, you know, that ability uh, atrophies or, uh, you know, kind of disintegrates over time. And so one of the things I noticed that you said is when people get burnt out, it's due to a lack of not checking in. Can you say more about that? Yes. So we talk about, um, so the burnout research talks about, you start off at, let's say, a new job um, with with a honeymoon phase and you have all the energy in the world and sometimes you actually push yourself a little bit more than usual. And then you go into the sort of everyday stuff where you lose that enthusiasm and, as I say, it's another day, another dollar, you're just working hard. Um, Now, stress... So this is a continuum. Stress is when you start perceiving overload. So two people can do the same job. One person will not think it's stressful and the other one will because it has a lot to do with perception. This is too much for me. I'm carrying too much on my plate. You're starting to feel like an overload. So that's not even an emotion. It's just an experience of I'm feeling overwhelmed. I'm feeling overloaded. I'm not coping with my everyday tasks. And so 
After that, you start getting physiological responses, and that's when it starts becoming more anxiety. Um, that the, the having this catastrophic response or the fight or flight or freeze response to what's going on. But again, if it's not attended to, then over time, and it's normally over months, you reach a point of burnout. And the difference with burnout and stress and anxiety is burnout when there's nothing left. Stress, you feel a lot. You feel it's all too much. Anxiety is you reacting to that, like I've got to get away from this or I've got to just give in to it. Burnout is your uh, the tank is empty. You have nothing left to give. You're disinterested in what you're doing. You've lot, you become cynical about your work and you doubt your own competence. And that's why burnout is very difficult to treat because people just feel there's nothing and often the only treatment is to take a very long break from work. So you want to check in right from the beginning is what am I doing now? You know, positive side, if you like, is one should even be aware when I'm putting in too much or when I'm putting on too much of a show or when I'm too excited about something. It's all about emotional regulation. What's an appropriate response to this? Um, and just along the way, checking in what's going for, on for me. And feelings are a big part of that. But it could also be, as I'm saying, how am I coping with everyday chores? How am I coping with the tasks? How do I feel about that? About that? And then feelings are where you're feeling sad, angry, jealous, insulted, rejected. It's a whole different area. Yeah, I can imagine people struggling with validating their own emotional experience of stress or anxiety or burnout because so much of the world is telling you that you can do more. You're not doing enough. Just, mm. you know, uh, uh, push yourself. And, uh, you know, the cemetery is filled with people who, um, you know, have wasted their potential and et cetera, et cetera. So we're getting all these signals to do more, be more, and that mm-hmm. we that we have more. And it's and so it's hard to separate w- what we're actually experiencing because I think the our fear also is to give up when we could have done more, to to stop an inch before we reach the goal line. Can you mm-hmm. can you speak to that? It's such an interesting um, concept of how do you know when it's enough and if you feel you haven't done enough, where is that coming from? But I totally agree with you that there is such a push to do more. I think there are two aspects in fairness. I think a lot of it is in people's jobs, we know that there's corporate greed and people are pushed to do more whether they want to or not. But then there's the other side of it where people are doing it because they want to leave a legacy or they're a perfectionist or they believe they're proving themselves in some way. And I suppose the message I want to give here is it's always individual. Um, And that's why sometimes it's important to speak to someone who knows you well. It could be a therapist, but it could be a good friend that's going, what is motivating me? It's never a one answer for everybody. And that's part of emotional intelligence. What drives me? Am I a perfectionist? Am I a workaholic? Am I numbing myself from the work? Am I competitive? Is that what's driving me? Am I, you know, wanting to make more money? Am I trying to prove my father wrong? What's, what is that about? Or do I not believe in myself and I'm stuck in a job that really is excruciating and is going to burn me out? So it's very much an individual thing that we all need to spend time 
to think about who we are, what drives us, and are the choices we're making reflecting our better selves. And our better selves is not related to money or status. It's living a life that's true to ourselves and our own emotional makeup. Yeah, and then therein lies courage. And I say courage because I'm reading Michelle Obama's book, Becoming. And this is no way like becoming a political thing. Everybody relax. Um, and she talked about how Barack Obama early in their marriage, I think it was six weeks into their marriage, um, rented a cottage in Bali to finish writing his book. And he was there for, I believe, four weeks, four to five weeks. And I just can't imagine the average person one being aware that that's what they needed to complete a task because yeah. everything else was so overwhelming. And then two, asking for that from your spouse, your significant other, because, you know, I mean, even myself to be away from my, you know, to go be away from my girl for a weekend or two weeks or whatever for gigs, you know, that's, a, that's a big conversation. So um, I, I can imagine that there's, there's someone listening in, who maybe is aware of what they need because they are feeling burned out and they're now afraid to ask for it either from their boss or from their significant other. What would you, what would you say to that? Well, you know, when you were reading my bio, it sounds like the things that I've done are all unconnected or disparate, but actually and I'm answering in a long way to get to the point. That the reason that I've ended up doing both is because I talk a lot to parents. And if you're a parent, no matter the age of your child, it's very important to have empathy, that fourth level I spoke about, and to give your child permission to express themselves, to make space for their feelings, to not tell them boys don't cry or, you know, you've got to push through or being, um, you know, not accepting feelings, all the things that people do. And to really, it starts, it really starts that young, that if we can teach the people around us that it's okay. Now, it's same with our partners. Sometimes it's very confronting when you have a partner who really wants to talk about their feelings or is expressing a feeling that we're uncomfortable with. But we need to show that love and courtesy to the people in our lives and allow them the space to express that. Bosses are a whole different thing. So it's become a trend in big companies to say they care about their employees, but it becomes a very, it's a very sticky area because employees are scared they're going to lose their jobs. Managers don't feel they know how to manage the feelings. So it's not an easy thing if you're scared of losing your job to really just say, look, I'm having an off day or I'm not coping with this or I don't like working with that person. What we need to do in our individual lives is, as I say, to develop empathy. If we're scared of feelings, we need to work on that so that we're not scared of other people's feelings. You know, one of the things we know with, with people who are potentially suicidal is talk to them about it. Don't avoid it. Bring it up. Um, whatever people are feeling, we need to give them space if we can. That's a very big gift we can do for them. If it's us, we need to find someone who will give us that space. We need to realize it's a legitimate need, and we need to have an area where we can expose that part of ourselves without fear. 
thank you so much, Renee, for expanding on that idea. Uh, earlier, you talked about tools to manage. That's the second part of emotional intelligence. And when I was scrolling through your YouTube channel, I noticed uh, you had this thing with a, with a ruler that you use as a tool. And yes. I was immediately captivated by it in your explanation. Can you talk to us about how we can use the ruler as a tool for managing our anxiety and, and improving our emotional intelligence? Thank you for asking that question. That's one of my favorite tools. I've got about 27 different tools, and it's actually a cognitive tool. And basically what happens with anxiety is when our body reacts like we're in danger. So when you are in danger, in, in Sydney, we talk about, you know, if you're on the beach and you see a fin and there's a shark, you had better swim like hell, right? You need and you will find you have that energy to get out of that water because you're really in danger. And that's appropriate. That's what fight or flight is for. When there's no real danger and you release all those chemicals that make you get ready to run like crazy or be super strong, it feels like anxiety, which is very uncomfortable. So part of what I treat people and teach people to do is to train the brain to know when something is life-threatening and it's not. And it's actually a binary thing. It's not how big is your problem. It's is your problem life-threatening. And if it's not, then you don't need fight or flight. So that's what the ruler says. On the one end, it's number one, not at all life-threatening. At the other end, number 10, it's life-threatening. And when you train your brain that I don't need fight or flight, your, your body stays calm, your mind stays calm, and you actually problem solve better. So, for example, when I teach the ruler, people will often say to me, but I've got a massive problem, you know, I'm getting divorced. And how people often try and get out of anxiety is going, look, it could be worse. It's not about how big the problem is. It's, is your life in danger? So back to emotions. I know you're sad. I know you rejected, I know you betrayed, I know you um, devastated, you're grieving, there are all these emotions, but is your life in danger? No. Then you don't need fight or flight. And what happens is, so the wording of the tool is, this event is not a catastrophe, it's an everyday problem that needs to be solved, not dramatized. And the more you say that to yourself when all these everyday things that set us off into rages or panic attacks or anxiety, hang on, I'm not in danger, I don't need fight or flight. So I want to stress you, Leo, we're not going, there's no problem. We're going, I don't need fight or flight for this problem. I'm not running from anything. You calm yourself by telling yourself there's no danger. Okay, now let me get into problem-solving mode. And with a big part of training yourself and developing emotional intelligence or on the other side managing your anxiety is practice and repetition. It's not about using the ruler once. It's making it part of every day. Every time you feel anxiety or your heart racing or some kind of whatever it is, you're not sleeping or whatever your symptom is, you just ask yourself, is this life-threatening? Do I need fight or flight? No. And over time, your brain actually learns to differentiate between the two. Wow. I love that because that is not exactly what I thought you were going to say when you said that. Because <laughs> I've, heard, I've heard people use the not necessarily the ruler 
method, but the number method of like on a scale of one to 10, how intense is your pain? And somebody will say eight and then you'll respond with, you know, why didn't you say nine kind of thing? But I love how you explained it with, is it life threatening? Because you're right. Our amygdala gets fired up and we get into that, oh, uh, you know, mammalian brain. And um, so, yeah, that, that makes it so much easier. Is it life threatening? And, and I think that any that's easy enough for anybody uh, or at least most people to understand and immediately apply. And I think it's a tricky area when people try and say it's not a big problem because our problems feel big to us, whatever the problem is. So we're not minimizing. Yes, it's a big problem, but you don't need fight or flight for it. So it's okay to feel that this is a big problem, but how I'm responding to it, I want to actually activate the rest of my brain because when your amygdala is firing and when you're in fight or flight, we say that hijacks the rest of your brain and actually stops you from problem solving in a good way. But when what I tell my patients is we're all problem solvers and every day there's a problem to solve. Every single day. Today, it's my microphone. Tomorrow, the air conditioning won't work. These are real third world problems, right? The next day, someone in my family might be sick. There are always problems. But when you actually face them as these are everyday problems and I'm a problem solver and not everything is life-threatening, then you stay calm and you problem solve better. Oh, that makes me want to read Sherlock Holmes books for some reason. Um, I had had just started reading them (laughs) and I was like, I don't need to read it. And then I saw it at the bookstore yesterday. And now it makes me, cause I just, cause like you said, it's a, it's about practice and repetition. And I think Mm. most of what I've been practicing when I think about it is reading and watching things where people are dramatizing their events and experiences versus solving their events and experiences. And so I'm, I'm, I've, those mirror neurons are probably starting to take place. And so I need to, I'm going to start reading more Sherlock Holmes uh, books. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, you know, earlier you also said when we talked about tools to manage um, our, and, 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 and improve our emotional intelligence, you said asserting yourself. Can you talk to me about, uh, can you give us an example of what that looks like to assert yourself at work, especially if you're a person who, uh, in a case, an example, you know, I, I had a friend who they had an office space and they were so upset with people walking in and out and they didn't quite know how to set a boundary of, you know, you can't come in the office, uh, I'm working. Even when they close the door, people would just open the door and walk in. Um, can you talk to us about asserting yourself at work? Also, a very interesting question because we live in a generation where, well, I find two two trends. The one is if I use the word assert yourself, people go, I'm, I'm conflict avoidance. I'm scared of conflict. I can't stand up to people. Um, and the other side is people who think asserting yourself is walking up to someone and yelling at them or something. They have this idea it's got to be aggressive. So asserting yourself is being able to say what you need, but obviously you want to do it in an emotionally intelligent way. And that means that you want to do it in a way that the other person is going to hear you and they're going to respond to your emotions. So if you could walk up and yell at somebody, 
sorry, they're going to immediately get their defenses up. So a big part of emotional intelligence, if you actually read the early literature, Daniel Goleman had a term called being politically savvy. I like that term. He says, when you work in an organization, you have to understand the dynamics. A person who's got good emotional intelligence doesn't work in on the, walk in on the first day and try to change things. So they give an example. You know, you're a new boy at the school. You don't immediately walk in and tell people how to play their games. You take a few weeks, you see who the teams are, you see who the leaders are, you understand how they do it, and then you find a way to either get part of it or to change it. That's the same in an organization. So you need to understand the dynamics and you need to think about how you can communicate what you want, that you will be heard and will have a successful outcome. Emotional intelligence means not being impulsive. It's thinking things through. Again, often it's good to talk to a mentor. How do I actually, with this group of people, what will be the best way that I'm going to achieve my outcome? So again, I suppose it's what I said earlier. There's not just one answer. It'll depend a lot on who the people are and how the system works. And sometimes it's very difficult to change a system but in general, it's always better to, to work slowly and to communicate in a soft way, but to say what you need. People will hear that better. So the first step is I know that I'm feeling uncomfortable. How do I manage my discomfort so that when I come across, I'm not impulsive, yelling, angry, that I come across in the most calm way I can? And what am I actually trying to achieve? Who are the people I need to speak to and what do I need to do? Uh, I when I hear that, I just imagine myself saying, "Okay, Leo, I, I want to be. I know I need to be calm, and I know I'm not. It's because I'm not comfortable with how things are. And then I can also feel myself afraid of exploding in the during the confrontation, like yeah. not knowing how to ground myself, or if you know, if I say something and then they say something." Um, you know, that, that, that then exacerbates or, you know, I hate the word trigger, but uh, we'll, we'll go with that for now. Um, and then it, it makes it worse. So I can see people going, okay, I know I need to be aware. I know I need to be calm as I'm asserting myself, but there might be a fear of, I might just go off and, and go, and go bananas. Uh, what would you, what would you say for, to that? So this is where we come to other tools. So when, for example, you're a person, and we all are like this, that can lose our cool, it's very important to build into everyday life, for example, just a very quick breathing method. So we know that calms the vagus nerve, it calms us. It's very Whether you're having an anxious day or not, to just every day learn how to calm yourself so that when you're in a, a situation that could be difficult, you know how to calm yourself. So often we live in a crisis intervention type of society where people wait till there's a problem and then they try to manage it. Whereas what you want to do is you want to build in everyday skills. Like if you train yourself every day to go, it's not life-threatening, then when something bigger happens, your brain already knows that. When every day you're taking five minutes to just calm yourself through breathing and it's part of your everyday practice, then when you've got something big to do, you know how to calm yourself. 
back to practice, repetition, building it in. But let me explain what I mean. So, yes, you don't, what you want to do is you might think, who is the person to speak to? Is it my manager? And maybe that's the person where you go, look, you know, this is you've employed me to do this job. I'm loving, you always try and build it. I'm loving what I do, but I'm the kind of person that I need quiet when I work. And I just wonder if you've ever had anybody else that's had that issue because it seems like what's happened until now is that people walk in and out. So I'm just wanting to find an environment where I can produce in the best possible way. And the way it is now is doesn't work with the way that I work. And the manager might be the person that has the power to go, obviously, I want you to work well. Let's let's change it. If the manager isn't the person, then often it's the teammates where you might say a similar thing. So I hope you can hear it's not yelling at anybody. It's saying, guys, how do you concentrate? When are you doing your work? Because I like to come in and have quiet from 9 till 12, and my dream would be to sit in a quiet office. Um, how do you work? How have you managed that with this kind of these kind of interruptions? So you're not attacking anybody. And normally people want to help and they go, well, the way we manage it is, or, you know, we're a bit ADD and so we don't need to sit quietly. And then you go, okay, so I'm very different. I'm not like that. Is there a way we can work together that we can all produce well? And sometimes let's say with people who are different, I find signs work very well. Again, with parenting, this works. They might say, well, we don't really realize it. So you go, well, would you be offended if I put up a sign that says, please don't come in between 9 and 12. And they go, no, that'll be a great reminder because we're just so used to coming in and out. So generally people want to help and they want to cooperate. And when you involve them in the solution and you talk about your individuality and you respect this is the empathy, how they do things, honestly, nine times out of 10, you'll find a solution. I love that. And, you know, I want to dig a little deeper into this whole emotional intelligence at work because I was looking at stats and they were saying how pharmacists have one of the highest suicide rates of all of the occupations, which surprises me because, you know, I, I get asthma medication um, every couple of weeks and um, I found my two pharmacists to be very um, amicable and friendly. Uh, people, but uh, I know that they both have uh, personal stressors in their life uh, because we've talked about it at length. And one of the things that comes up is that being a pharmacist is such a, a thankless job. H how does one pat oneself on the back or when there's really no one else to do that for you? And, and I bring that up to say, because I, I, I was thinking about growing up when you're a kid, there's so many uh, awards and acknowledgements that you get from your peers, from teachers, from parents along the way. And then as adults, a lot of us get into these jobs where there's no one around us to, to celebrate us, to acknowledge us, mm -hmm. to thank us. Um, and I would imagine yeah. that learning how to do that for yourself is part of being emotionally intelligent. Yeah, that's the third level of self-motivation. So I'll share with you what I do when I, when I train in corporations. I always tell a story about um, a man was walked up to a construction site where people were hammering nails into a wood. They were building a structure. And he walks up to the first person and he says, what are you doing? 
And he says, can't you see I'm hammering a nail into a piece of wood? And he walks up to the second person and he says, what are you doing? And he says, can't you see me building a structure? This is going to be a building. And he walks up to the third person and he says, what are you doing? He says, we're building an edifice to God. So they're all hammering a nail into the wood, but the one person can see it's going to be this church, let's say, and he sees it's a much higher purpose. But the other one is just seeing than hammering. So a big part of what I often ask people in corporations is to find a meaning in what they're doing. So it's not just I'm hammering a nail to see the bigger purpose. So one of the questions I sometimes ask is, would you do this job if you weren't paid? So I have to say I'm very fortunate that I've been doing what I've been doing for 40 years and I still am passionate about it. And I have often done it when I haven't been paid. I certainly need to earn a living, but I love what I do. So I'm very lucky. Not everyone is in that. But sometimes when people realize, actually, I don't want to be doing anything else, that gives them a level of meaning and satisfaction. But sometimes it's just enough to go, I'm bringing home food. I am feeding my family. And so it's not I'm hammering a nail into a piece of wood. It's like I'm doing something really purposeful. All these people need me. Sometimes it's a bigger thing. We're building a hospital or um, improving the economy or whatever. I'm building my own business. So it's about finding meaning. That's one big way that we stay motivated and, by the way, not burnt out because we're not focusing on the hammer and the nail. We're focusing on the bigger picture of what this means in my life. I'm a human being. I'm contributing to the world. I have a unique destiny and a unique job that I'm doing in the world, whether it's for my family or my business or my country, whatever I feel. The second thing that I teach is what you're talking about is the ability to endorse oneself. And the way to do it is I always look at character traits. And no matter what we're going through, if we can find something to say that we're doing well, for example, you mentioned losing it. If we know we have a tendency to lose it or we could have lost it, no one knows the internal struggle we've had. But if we can go, well done, Leah, normally I would have lost it, but this time I stayed calm. That's self-endorsement. Well done. No one knows that I stayed up with a crying baby all night. No one's patting me on my back or pay, but I did that and I didn't strangle the baby. Well done. Well done that I got up for work today, even though I didn't feel like it because I was being responsible or diligent or generous or kind. I didn't shout at that person because I was being kind. I went out of my So when you learn to look at your character traits and you look at what you are doing on a daily basis that shows character, that shows virtue, these might sound like old-fashioned words. It's not about money. It's not about rewards. We build self-respect when we look at ourselves in this way. And that's how you stay motivated. I don't really love my job, but I'm, I'm feeding my family. I'm proud of myself. I'm responsible. I'm caring. I'm generous. I'm kind. I, I love that. You know, I actually have started doing that in my nightly journal where, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a lined journal and every line, I don't go to bed until I fill up every line with something that I did today, some type of actionable thing, whether yeah. it's brushing my teeth, taking a shower, uh, making the bed, putting on clothes, running errands, you know, hugging Michelle, calling a friend, 
you know, whatever it is, just filling up that page. And there's something about filling up that page with all, you know, some things are big, some things are minutia, but, uh, but re- it's a reminder that all actions are equal. And I think that a lot of times we're so busy trying to swing for the big thing that we are dismissive of all the little things that we've done throughout our day, not, you know, brushing your teeth, uh, you know, flossing and things of that. Can I, can I interject Elia? Absolutely. I don't know if you're doing this, but if I can, what I want to suggest you do, if you're not doing it is tag on a character tray. I brush my teeth that shows self care. I hug my partner that shows love. I'm loving especially when you hug her and you don't always feel like it, right? She needed a hug. I, you know, I was generous. I, you know, so with things like self-care, responsibility, kindness, generosity, you the actions are fantastic, but you want to tag on something about you as a human being because that's where our value comes from. And, you know, everyone knows now that the famous eulogy, you know, Stephen Covey made it famous. What do you want someone to say, you know, when you die? and hopefully you live in old age and you die from natural means, is no one says, I wish he'd worked harder. Everyone says he was kind, general, responsible. All those things actually is what make us a decent human being, and that's where our value comes from. And that's where what we need to give each other is we don't have to prove ourselves with status or success. If we can value each other as human beings, then life becomes meaningful. I absolutely love that. And I also recognize I'm going to have to print out (laughs) character traits because that's (laughs) going to be so challenging for my brain to, uh, to, you know, to, um, to add that on, but I'm excited by that, by, I don't want to say challenge, but, um, by that opportunity, Uh, I'm definitely going to do that tonight and, uh, and see what we come up with. Um, and, and, right. and, you know, it's so funny because I've realized that with compliments, too, it's like, you know, not just to compliment something um, physical about a person, but to compliment their character of like, wow, you know, thanks for taking out the trash. That was really thoughtful of you. Correct. You know, that, that kind of thing. Correct. Number yeah. four, you talk about the ability to be empathetic. And I would imagine yeah. if we're not really tuned into ourselves it's going to be definitely challenging to tune in to other people and, and mm. put ourselves in somebody else's shoes. What does that sound like? Cause I could imagine someone saying I- I'm too empathetic. Like I, 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 I'm so empathetic to the point where, um, you know, I just kind of give in to what their demands are. It's like, I understand, you know, boss, uh, you know, we're short on staff here. So I got to work more hours, even though like it's going to take away from my wife and kids. Um, right. Talk to us about uh, how to be empathetic and still honor ourselves. Yeah. So we have to be careful not to be sympathetic, but to be empathic. And, and that means understanding where the other person comes from. So that's what I was explaining. For example, when we spoke about how do you confront people who are walking into your room all the time, it's you, instead of going, look, this is the way it's got to be and my this is my view, you go, okay, this is where I'm coming from. Tell me where you're coming from. It's a major way of not having conflict. And that's when they might go, well, look, we can't sit still or we prefer noise or we've always done it this way. So empathy is when you understand, and it doesn't have to be a deep feeling thing, what makes other people tick, then you have 
So that's why we're talking about using your emotions cleverly. You know how you feel. You understand and give respect that they might feel differently. And then you can attempt to meet their needs. But it's not ever at a cost to yourself, as you say. So you would say if your boss was expecting you to work long hours, you know, it's okay to go, look, I understand where you're coming from. This is what I can offer you. Um, but I can't, I need to have self-care or I have a family. This is what I'm, I can't do more than that. But you're not angry about it or you're not putting the person down or you're not getting into conflict about it. And you can be a support to that person and go, well, look, let me try and help you find other solutions. But overloading me isn't going to be a solution. And fixing your problem, fixing other people's problems isn't a solution either. So empathy means that you... That's why I was saying, like I gave the example of when you knew at an organization, empathy means understanding where they're coming from, how they run until now. How does the manager tick? What that's what it means. It's not sympathy or caring. It's just it can be, but it's often just going, that's the kind of person this manager is. The way to approach him, the way that'll work will be this, as opposed to going, it's got to be my way and this is good communication. No, it's I noticed that he's best in the morning and I've noticed that he loves it when I ask him about his wife and I've noticed that he needs a lot of compliments and so I understand who he is. So before I jump in with my needs, let me, this is a political, politically savvy, let me give him what he needs, let me relate to him as a person, accept him as a person and then I can ask for what I, what I want. And so you have much better relationships. I love that. And, be, and the reason why this is, you know, a part of the reason why this is so important is because when we look at the suicide rates, it's, it's generally people at the at the workplace, I should say, you know, it's people between 45 and 55. Um, mm. And I believe part of that is they're approaching that retirement age. And, you know, part of it is financial. But I think a part of it is also when we're not emotionally intelligent where we're not socially savvy at work we quickly start to isolate ourselves and so mm. now we have a job that's you know maybe paying the bills but we don't have any social network we don't have anybody to practice our social skills with or c connect with and then resentment builds up and you know we're harboring this anger and so there's no outlet for it and then when we retire there's no one around and and mm. no paycheck coming in and all those things just start to quickly add up lonely isolated and then uh you know it seems like ending our life is uh the only option at that that moment but when we right. learn how to connect with people at work then that allows us to expand our life instead of contracting it yeah that's very true Renee, is, is there anything uh, in terms of emotional intelligence uh, that we haven't shared? Are there any, um, are there any, you know, I, I've read that reading fiction books kind of helps you become more in tune with your emotions and, and understand others well. Are there, are there other things that people can practice that we haven't discussed briefly? Well, I, what I encourage people to do is to, and you can get them online now, get a vocabulary, an emotion vocab, feelings vocabulary, because people tend to like have four feelings. You know, I'm angry, sad, upset. You know, they don't have many feelings, so they always say the same few things. 
I just came up with three. I can't think. Happy. Um, but there is a whole range. And when you have all the different emotions, you know, abandoned, insulted, rejected, fearful, helpless, hopeless, then it's the more you can actually identify what you're feeling, that's the first step. So I'd recommend that people get a feelings vocabulary and stick it up on their fridge. And what we spoke about is every day to be checking in and to know that it's not necessary when we talk about emotional intelligence, anything to do with pathology or illness or anxiety. It helps you with that as well because being able to emotionally regulate is important for everybody. So often people think it's a, it's a negative thing. It's not. It's being how do I, I'm a human being with emotions, how do I recognize my emotions and fine-tune them when I need to but also use them in the service of what I need to do, how to, how to be treated better, how to treat myself better, how to form better relationships because emotions are a powerhouse. And when we're enthusiastic or we're loving or we're joyful, we can achieve so much. And so, you know, if there's not enough joy in our life, it's not as simple as reading a novel. It's what will bring me joy? How can I express my individual self in a way that will bring me joy? And we are in an age of inclusiveness and diversity, and we need to really, really take that to heart and really empower everybody to be their individual self and respect them as human beings. Because I just want to add this, there's somebody actually, um, Dasha Black, her name, she worked in an office with me. She's a clinical psychologist. And 15 years ago, her son took his life. And he was actually a very successful cardiologist. And he was, of course, in that age gap. He was about 46. And he, she looked at it 15 years later when she sort of recovered a bit from her trauma of losing him. He was so successful, but he couldn't tell anybody that he worked with, none, none of the other doctors that his wife had left him. And that shame, he was such a high achiever all his life that he had failed in that area. And what you said right in the beginning, you know, it's, it's a cultural shift and it's me talking about it. But if we each do it on an individual basis, that we don't have to be high achievers to be worthy human beings. And if we can do that for ourselves first, recognize our character, what we do on a daily basis is, is worthwhile, then hopefully, you know, people will feel that their lives are more worthwhile. I love that. We don't have to be high achievers to be worthy human beings. Thank you so much, Renee. Tell people how they can find you, work with you, contact you. Thanks, Leah. So my website is called Anxiety Solutions CBT. It stands for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Or if they just Google my name, they'll find me as well. And then last question, Renee, I ask this of all my guests because I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Renee? I would say pause, reflect, and this ability to sit with uncomfortable feelings is, I sound so simplistic and I'm saying it slowly because I don't want anybody to feel, you know, unheard or judged, but it was what I was talking about earlier. Sometimes we have to sit with very, very uncomfortable feelings and so many people I've worked with when they've done that, they've always been very grateful that they didn't take their lives because often it's an action. But being able to really 
And to really, the world is full of people that can help you and reach out. And it often becomes sitting with those uncomfortable feelings and thinking there must be other solutions becomes a turning point where people actually often rediscover themselves in a whole different way. So just pause. That's a big part of emotional intelligence. Stop and think. What's going to work? What are the other solutions? It's never just one solution to a problem. And everybody's needed and everybody's valuable, even if we don't feel it sometimes. Thank you so much, Renee. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for calling the 988 or any of the international phone numbers that are listed in all the show notes. If you're in Sydney, Australia, or if you're in Budapest or Toronto, Canada, wherever you are in the world, there are numbers for you to call, chat, text. You can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Renee. My pleasure, Leah. Thank you.